Well, welcome to the driving line. I've got about 370 miles to go today until I get home. I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I wanted to, wanted to touch on some some more issues that are being discussed online. And I wanted to start with a verse that I have recommended to people for many decades that they add to their memorization list for many reasons, but especially if you're dealing with subordinationists, Jehovah's Witnesses, people like that. And that is Colossians 2.9. And now, of course, it comes after 2.8, which is a warning against being taken captive by philosophy and men's traditions. Uh, and it gives the reason for that. Hati enauto katoikai pantar pleromates theatitas somatikos, for in him is dwelling all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And it is hard to uh, escape the reality that Paul is either directly at that time, because there was already this teaching coming from the East, which would be very early, uh, or even prophetically, um, warning of what would come, dealing with a, sort of a preemptive strike against what is going to be the greatest enemy and challenge to the church in the early centuries, that of course is the heresy of Gnosticism, the religion of Gnosticism. And there in, in one sentence, you have the assertion that the reason that all of man's knowledge, philosophy, traditions, beliefs are to be subject to Christ, which sometimes embarrasses Christians to say. It really does. Let's just let's be honest. There are, there are Christians who are embarrassed when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, all of human knowledge is to be under his lordship. It will only uh, result in human flourishing when that knowledge is ordered in light of Christ and in light of his lordship and his person. That embarrasses people. But the reason is given right here. For in him is dwelling all the fullness of deity in bodily form. That which makes God God. It's not Godhead, it's deity. That which makes God God. Theatetas is not the same as Thyat, which is used over in Romans 120. They're different words. And Theatetas is much more specific. And it is said that all the fullness of deity is dwelling in him in bodily form. Now, I, I've read lots of commentaries on this text, and I know that there are some other takes, but in light of where Colossians 2.9 fits in the whole polemic of Colossians, I, I think the only way really to consistently interpret it is to go ahead and, and put emphasis upon the fact that he, he says, he, is, he says, is dwelling, not just in some gnomic sense, but post-resurrection, all the funnels of that which, which makes God God is dwelling in Christ somatikos. Now, again, some people 
understand somatic is really or something like but I, I think the emphasis has to be seen in the polemic as being the physic the physicality of the resurrection. Christ is still the God man. Uh, he has not laid aside that perfect human nature that he took on freely in the incarnation. And he continues dwelling in that God-man state, um, even in that day, and therefore is the standard of all things. I mean, if he is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, that you need to understand, that is about as blatant, blunt, it's blunt force trauma to the head of Gnosticism. I guess would be the way to put it. It is a the, the whole concept of Yaldaba Oath and Sophia and the eons and the Pleroma and all of that is obliterated, just nuked. I'm not sure we can use that term right now, but um, done away with by the assertion that that everything that makes God God, the highest level of the of the Pleroma is dwelling bodily in Christ. I mean, that is totally and completely outside the realm of possibility for um, the Gnostics. And so that is a, you, you cannot affirm what the Apostle says and continue to hold on to any type of Gnostic concept at all. So, here you have in this epistle to the church at Colossae a description of Christ post-resurrection that is so central to why we say that Christ has to be Lord of human knowledge and why we subject all forms of human philosophy, which would include all forms of human philosophy that existed prior to Christ, to Christ, and to his lordship, and to his sovereignty. Absolutely necessary because he is not merely some uh, secondary created creature, no matter how exalted. All the pleroma, the fullness of that which makes God God, is dwelling in him in bodily form. He is the creator. He took on human flesh. He has not abandoned that flesh. He has not ceased being the God-man. Now, I wasn't going to mention this, but I would just, I would just point out that that seems really honestly to cause some serious problems for people who try to uh, force uh, Aristotle's categories on the Christian God. And it would seem to cause the problems for people who are today just obliterating the clear distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit, not as to their deity, not as to the fact that each is described as Yahweh, their full full participation in the divine being, but the fact that the Bible differentiates between them. And simply to say that, well, the Son is incarnate and appropriations and... No. The Son not only became incarnate, 
and took on a perfect human nature. But it is through Him. It is in Him. Ephesians 1, in Him, in Him, in the Beloved, in Him, over and over and over again, in Christ. Our union with God is through the God-man, through the Incarnation, through the Son, in a way that is not the same as with the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit may indwell us, and that's unique to the Spirit in that sense, but the union is with Christ, the God-man. That's why he has to remain the God-man, because the people of God are united to God in this astonishing fulfillment of Emmanuel in the Old Testament, God with us. And so, here you have it laid out in in this tremendous verse that teaches the deity of Christ, teaches the humanity of Christ, the continuing reality of incarnation, even in the exalted state where he rules and reigns and is the standard of all human knowledge and predication and, and everything else. It's, a, it's an incredible passage. It's nice and nice and short to memorize, but there's obviously a whole lot behind it, especially when you uh, study Gnosticism, you see the terms that uh, play Roma, you see Eon all through Colossians, and and uh, the specific utilization of that same terminology by the Gnostics in the first number of centuries of the history of the Christian Church. So, with that, we we, we have a biblical text, we have an, a, a, something that is theanustos. It is God-breathed. What is God-breathed? Hati en auto katoikai pantrople romates theate tasomatikos. That is God breathed. That exists on a level of authority that no human philosopher, system of philosophy, system of theology can ever approach. If, if, if we believe in inspiration, if we believe what Jesus himself taught, on that particular subject, if we believe, as he did, that this is God speaking, then we have to confess the unique nature of the authority of those words in that original language. And that has to be the bulwark, the foundation, the ground for all the affirmations that we make. Now, if we say that we must interpret those Greek words in the light of any kind of external system, then the question becomes, well, then that which is theanustos is dependent upon this system that you are promoting. And the system, therefore, must have the same or higher, if possible, level of authority. This is where the issue of sola scriptura, tota scriptura, scriptural sufficiency, all um, comes together. Now, that is just one of many texts, not only in Colossians, but throughout the New Testament, that 
have been provided to us that give us graciously inspired revelation concerning the nature of our God that he has, since he has chosen to reveal this to us, then we believe there is a reason why he has done so. He wants us to know these truths about himself so that we may worship him aright. Now, the question we immediately have to ask is, all right, um, let's say you live in uh, the year 400. Okay, you've already, you've already got the Council of Nicaea. You, you've pretty much got the New Testament down pat now. Could you, what would have to happen for you to come to believe that what would be appropriate to worship God now will not be appropriate uh, 800 years in the future? Well, you'd have to believe that there are either things that Scripture is not sufficient to communicate. So it's going to be more Scripture or more revelation or something a new office, an office in the church that provides uh, divinely inspired commentary, something like that. Or there's going to be need to be some type of development of a tradition that expands upon these things so that someone living in the year 1200 can worship God more fully and more properly than the person living in 400. And where, what, what would that be? Where, does, where can that come from is really an important question. It's, it's a question that, unfortunately, most Reformed folks haven't thought a lot about if they have not taken the time to read a lot of church history in regards to the conflicts that we have had with Rome and the issue of tradition and things like that. Okay, so. Now, what I saw that I wanted to respond to uh, today was, and I was looking at it last night, I wasn't able to really see who was, I, I don't know who was posting what, but I was seeing more cancellation, more, you know, nastiness online. There are a lot of people today who are just dismissing me as a Trinitarian heretic. They clearly have not listened to anything that I've said. They've not read any of my works. But they trust and believe what other people say online. So if a trusted voice says, this guy's gone off the rails, and they don't care to check these things out for themselves. And I was thinking about how this has happened over and over again in church history. You you cannot uh, avoid the reality that, especially as the church became more and more connected to the state, as sacralism grew and grew, and not not a not a proper sacralism, a not because there is a wide movement of the Spirit of God uh, drawing people to personal faith in Jesus Christ, but 
it's becoming uh, advantageous, it's becoming cultural to be a Christian. There's a huge difference between those two, two things. And you see situation after situation. So let's, let's talk specifically, because this, this is what it's about. I'll make both applications. At some point, I'm not sure if it was on the dividing line or maybe one of my students uh, in the early church history class, maybe there was a spy, uh, or maybe someone just mentioned it or something, but someone with a, with a sense of shock uh, made reference to the fact that I said that the Council of, that the Creed of Chalcedon was a compromised document that was uh, influenced by politics. And their conclusion was, well, that must mean it's wrong, and that must mean he's rejecting Chalcedonian Christology, and da 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 you know, and it's, it's, and again, there, there's just going to be, there's just so many people, you know, Doug Wilson deals with this, I deal with this, there's so many people who are just so prejudiced and so biased and filled with so much animus that it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what the context is, it doesn't matter what the facts are. Uh, they're going to believe whatever is the most negative possible thing and then repeat that to others. Which is why the sin of slander is such a sin. Anyway, uh, I did say that in early church history when we talked about Council of Councilmen. And I think I've, I said it a few weeks ago on the dividing line as well when I said I'd really like to do a whole lot more, do a whole discussion on the Council of Councilmen because of what I'd like to do and I don't, I'm, I don't want to promise, <laughs> um, I don't want to promise this at any point in time right now, but what I'd love to do on the big board in the big studio is to put the, the actual creedal statement and then color code the sections as to which of the groups that are represented in the council would be amenable to that, that this would represent their position, and which groups would find that to be one of their problematic statements, so that then, you know, right afterwards there's another statement where they're sort of thrown a bone and and talk about Antioch, Alexandria, uh, talk about Pope, uh, Pope Leo, and... <laughs> um, the friends of, of Eutyches, Eutychians, of course, uh, the Nestorians, uh, the Ap- Apollinarians, and talk about the fact that, for example, Chalcedon did not unify the church. There are monophysite communities to this day that reject the Council of Chalcedon. Um, then again, neither did Nicaea. In fact, Nicaea had the opposite effect initially. Um, but it would be really interesting to just go, okay, this side was saying phusis means this, and this side was saying hypostasis means this, and, and so this side had to change their views, and this side was trying to defend Cyril of Alexandria, and, and in the middle of all this, you've got the, uh, emperor in Constantinople, and that's connected with the politics of Constantinople versus Alexandria, which is just, if you want, <laughs> if you want cancellation, oh goodness, uh, look at, 
how Cyril of Alexandria or his monks uh, treated. Well, they they beat Flavian to death. They beat the 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 deposed uh, bishop of Constantinople to death. Okay, I mean they literally beat him to death. And I'm not talking. I'm not talking. They uh, abused him in social media. I'm talking. They took their fists and rocks and clubs and whatever and beat him till he died. Um, physically, okay, blood, gore, the whole nine yards. Uh, so, so the the animosity between Alexandria and Constantinople is astonishing, and and then the emperor, the head of the empire now is in Constantinople, not Rome. Rome's in the you know it's in the final stages of falling depending on exactly where you, where you date that, but 410's already happened. Alaric has already come and gone. And so, you've got Rome and Constantinople. They're fighting with each other. Hence, you've got Canon 28 of Council of Calston, which Rome never accepted, which basically says that they're all equals, which opens the door for, uh, eventually, since it says the Pope of Old Rome had this authority because it was the chief city of the empire. Well, now it's not the chief city of the empire. So what happens now? That opens a whole question there. Leo is defending papal primacy. He views himself as the infallible vicar of Christ. He, and some people would identify Leo as the first true pope. Um, some others would say Gregory, but um, Leo certainly has a significantly more developed concept of papal supremacy and, and papal primacy in doctrinal authority and ecclesiastical authority than even Stephen had, you know, in the days of Cyprian and, and things like that. So, you've got that tension, and you've got a tension in Constantinople and Alexandria going on. So, between the Alexandrian view of Christ, which tends toward Eutyches, and the Antioch view, which tends toward Nestorius. And so, the, the, you've got, and you've got variations amongst them. I mean, there's, there's not absolute unanimity amongst guys from Antioch and guys from Alexandria. People will switch sides. And so, there's a lot of stuff going on, uh, at the Council of Calcedon. There really, really is. So no one can dispute that. I, I think a bunch of people that were liking these tweets and, oh, I just can't believe it. I really wonder how many of them know any of the major players, any of the major views, any of the background, any of the interaction. How many of them led, have read Leo's tome? Uh, I, you know, I really, really wonder how many of them have. And so if you're, if you're, uh, you know, writing about how whites become a heretic and you haven't read any of that stuff, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You really don't. You, you, you you're, you're clueless. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Stop it. You're embarrassing yourself because there is absolutely positively no way on God's green earth, that you can dispute the reality of the fact that there were 
all sorts of political, and, and political not only within the church, but externally with the empire. I mean, the, the, you know, the emperor in, Const- in Constantinople that calls the council. And says, you cannot deny the fact that these realities existed. It's just, it, it's a fact. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm a heretic for stating a fact? Really? Hmm. Okay. But what this illustrates, uh, as first of all, there, the, the, the amount of cancellation that went on for decades, what happened to John Chrysostom there in Constantinople because of the Alexandrians and, and the back and forth between those two seas and, you know, we, we do it in social media now. Um, Chrysostom lost his life because of it. And these are Christians betraying Christians. That's the sad part of all of it. Um, this, there's nothing new. And what would happen is, you know, I've just, I, I've said this more than once. I've never been a fan of, of Cyril of Alexandria. I really haven't. Obviously a brilliant mind, but just, just really one of the most unlikable characters in early church history. And you look at how he and his people dealt with Constantinople and, and people that would represent other perspectives and the kind of nasty derangement syndrome stuff that we're seeing online today. Um, it's been going on for a long, long time. Long, long time. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I just, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I commented on this on the dividing line a while back, but that when Thomas More and Martin Luther went at each other, someone estimated that between the two of them, <laughs> they used Every possible Latin term for excrement that had ever been thought of by the mind of man, of each other. <laughs> it's just like, it can get, it's been nasty for a long time. And I, I keep that in mind as, as people who won't represent me accurately, won't, won't, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for decades, they don't care, or they're constantly trying to, well, you said this at one point, now you say this, and, and they, they have no interest whatsoever in fairness or balance. They're just filled with animus. Sometimes they're filled with jealousy is what they're filled with. They think they should be doing the stuff I've gotten to do. Um, but you, you, you just, when that happens, I'm just reminded that it, it comes with the territory ain't the first time. Shouldn't be that way. I, 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 I get it. it. It shouldn't be that way. But it is. It is. That's, that's the reality. And so that sort of helps to, to deal with it because, you know, a lot of what's coming at me is coming from my own group. The people that are supposed to be my buds, people that have been, people that, that have supported me in the past and we've, we've worked together and taught in their churches and taught in their schools and now they're the ones doing the cancellation. And it's like, yep. That's not new. Not, not first time that's happened. You, 
you can go back in church history. That is one of the blessings or curses, depending how you want to look at it, of being a church history professor is, yep, yep, yep. Uh, we've seen this before. And uh, so, yeah, the cancellation thing, nothing new. Secondly, uh, when I was in seminary, when I was doing, I took a systematic theology class at Fuller Theological Seminary, probably 1984, I would say. No, 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 it can't be, dummy. 1988, probably. And I was, now my systematic theology professor was an interesting fellow, very sharp guy. He was good at telling you what people in the past believed, but not so good at telling you what he himself believed. Um, it was more of a history of theology than an actual systematic theology class. But I made the best of it. I had learned to do that by that point in time. And I wrote a paper in that class, and I had to ask him if I could write it longer than what was uh, required or limitations and things like that. And uh, so... I wrote uh, the Trinity: the definition of Calcedon and oneness theology. The Trinity: the definition of Calcedon and oneness theology. And when I now I had taken church history. In fact, by then I had probably taken the class three different times because I enjoyed the teacher so much. But but when you're covering so much space, and I had this frustration uh, two weekends ago when I when I taught. Um, early church history, you, there's just so, you know, I, I didn't even get to cover John Chrysostom uh, almost at all. And we sort of had to rush toward the end. And that, that's just what happens when you do these types of classes. And that was the types of classes I had back then as well. Uh, Dr. Feldman, my professor, would fly in and we'd only have so much time. Anyway, uh, I, when I wrote that paper, I simply imbibed a uh, a view and a concept regarding creeds, ecumenical creeds. You know, it, it was like, well, they just sort of have this special authority, you see, because they're ecumenical. And I, I, I knew. Like, for example, that Nicaea had had to fight for acceptance, and, uh, you know, I, I understood that, but I hadn't really gotten to the point of recognizing that, you know, I hadn't been forced yet, because I wasn't dealing with Roman Catholicism yet, to think through ultimate sources of authority. And so it's it's real easy to just go, well, you know, I had heard Norm Geisler say something about the first seven ecumenical councils. It's like, oh, well, that sounds like we're supposed to just go, yeah, the first seven ecumenical councils. Didn't really know what they were about, hadn't read much about them, never thought about the relationship of scriptural authority to church authority and what churches are behind these things. And, any of that kind of stuff. We just hadn't even, it just didn't even enter the, into the mind, really. It's just, well, they're ecumenical councils and we accept them and we go from there. 
And so I wasn't looking at the Council of Chalcedon historically. My paper really focused on key biblical texts that addressed the important issues that were raised by Chalcedon in regards to the relationship of the divine and human natures in in Jesus, one person, two natures. What does that mean? What's the hypostatic union? Uh, how does this how is this related to Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, et cetera, et cetera? Especially Nestorius. Really didn't have any uh bead at that point in time on Leo's tome or what that would how that's relevant and how important it is, things like that at all. But I think that's how the vast majority of Protestant evangelicals, when they are even aware of, okay, Council of Council, 451, middle of the century, uh, okay, all right, how these are related, let alone any idea of the background, and, and hence, when I've gotten in trouble now for saying that the, the proper authority of any of these councils has to be derived from its fidelity to scripture. And the problem is, if you create a system based upon some type of external development of theology over time and then say, this must now be the lens through which you interpret scripture, then you don't seem to realize you're, you're not going to be able to hold to solo scriptura. Not consistently, anyways. You, you, I know lots of people who have never been pushed, they've never been put in a position of being forced to see that they're functioning, they're functioning inconsistently. But I'm put in that position every time I walk on the debate stage. Um, that's, that's what I do. And so I have to think those things through. And dealing with Roman Catholicism, especially, and their sharp apologists gave me the, the opportunity to do that. And so, when when people lose their minds on social media and and go, uh, he's, he's going to abandon Chalcedon. Well, what is the essence of Chalcedon that a true believer is holding to, and why? When I when I first heard about it, when I first dealt with it. I didn't have the right reasons for holding to Chalcedon. But I do now. And so you go through each of those phrases and the the weight of the authority does not come from the council. It comes from, all right, uh, Jesus, uh, or Paul, for example, describes, you know, he uses the terminology, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
How do you crucify the Lord of glory? Crucifixion is a physical act. It takes place in time and history. But the Lord of glory, that's, that's an exalted term for Christ, for, for deity. So, so here you have Paul functioning in a Chalcedonian manner. And it's that kind of Theanustas revelation that has to be seen as foundational and determinative for the truthfulness of the words of Chalcedon, not the other way around. And as soon as you say, no, you start with Chalcedon, and that's how you understand those words, you no longer believe in any form of Sola Scriptura at all. You, do, you may not know it yet. You may not realize you've punched your ticket across the Tiber or across the Bosporus or at least to someplace in England. Um, but you have. You just... You just don't, you haven't been put in the position. You have not been placed in the pressure cooker. The pressure cooker demonstrates where the inconsistencies are. The pressure cooker demonstrates where you're literally contradicting yourself. And so, people lose their mind when I I make a completely indisputable, unremarkable comment about the historical reality of the Council of Chalcedon. What are those people going to do when they run into someone who's seeking to destroy their faith that knows the same things I know? Because it's it's public knowledge. It's out there. You may not know it, but it's public knowledge. you got to deal with it. And what if they want to use it to destroy their faith? What are they going to do that? I don't know. I don't know. But these are the, these are, I, I fully understand why a lot of folks are like, you know, this seems like it's just getting so complicated. Well, it, it's not so much that it's complicated. It's that you, you need to, you need to know what has happened in the past and why it happened. And it does help a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to have that basic knowledge of church history so you can at least put yourself in the context so as to understand where the, the terminology you're using came from. We use so much specific language that was defined as a part of church history. And if we don't, if we don't know that, then we can't really examine uh, what it is that, that may be under dispute today. We may be having a big dispute today and not realize this has been disputed 47 times before, for crying out loud. Don't you think it's important to know how they handled it in the past? Well, for a lot of folks, not so much. But it is important, I think, to all of us. So, there you go. There's, um, there's a lengthy, I don't even know how lengthy that was. Uh, 39 minutes, not as long as yesterday, but a 40 minute long discussion, a little jaunt through church history at, well, it, it's not 75 miles per hour. I had to go through some construction zones there. It was going pretty slowly, but, uh, back up to speed now as we're heading, heading home today and, uh, 
Lord willing, to some in-studio dividing lines. Maybe, maybe tomorrow? I, I don't know. I, I've got so much to catch up on now that it's it's tough to say. But we'll see. We'll see if we can't squeeze one in uh, and not be completely exhausted by them. But uh, we'll, we'll do our best. So thanks for listening to the dividing line, driving line, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I, I thank you for putting up with the background noise and uh, all the rest of that kind of stuff. It's just what's necessary to do when you're you're driving down the road uh, by yourself uh, with your cell phone. That's all you got. So thanks for listening. Hope it's useful to you. We'll see you next time. God bless.